The book, Hitler's American Gamble, recounts the five days that upended everything. Those days include December 7th through December the 11th, 1941, from Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor to Hitler's declaration of war on the United States. Tracing developments in real time, British historians Brendan Sims and Charlie Laterman reveal how America's engagement was in fact far from inevitable. Professors Sims and Laterman quote the late Churchill biographer Martin Gilbert as saying Hitler's decision to declare war on the United States was, quote, arguably his single greatest mistake of the war, unquote. Professor Charlie Laterman, when did you start thinking about this particular book, Hitler's American Gamble? Well, we started thinking about the book when we were teaching a class together. So Brendan and I taught used to teach a class together at Cambridge's uh, International Relations Department. And after class one day, we were talking about that very tight but uh, excruciatingly uncertain period between Pearl Harbor and Hitler's declaration of war on the United States. And we thought, well, what, what must it have been like to have been sitting in the White House, to have been sitting in 10 Downing Street, waiting to know what might happen from Hitler's Germany, how he might respond. And our sense was that this was a period of, of, of real uncertainty and a period where so much was up in the air. And so we decided after that conversation, after class, to sort of dig into this and decide, well, is, is what was actually going on and how can we try and recreate that? And, and it came from there. It came from, from teaching together. Brendan Sims, why did the Japanese attack the United States on December the 7th, 1941? Well, I think there's, there's two reasons, a, a, a deep uh, long-term reason and an approximate reason. The deep long-term reason is that the uh, Japanese empire had uh, ambitions uh, in East Asia, um, which were hegemonic uh, and which were not compatible, particularly with regard to China, but also other parts of the region, which were not compatible with U.S. interests. And the United States was pushing back. Uh, and Japan, the Japanese uh, were, in a sense, in a kind of a fundamental uh, clash uh, with America on this. The proximate reason is that the Japanese leadership felt that uh, while on the one hand their time had come uh, to, to realize their ambitions, they were also, they felt, running out of time uh, for the simple reason that uh, the Roosevelt administration had imposed uh, in the sort of summer of uh, 1941 uh, uh, serious embargoes uh, on Japan to do with oil and scrap metal, which were slowly, from the point of view of the Japanese leadership, strangling uh, the empire. Um, and finally, then, uh, the Secretary of State um, had also issued what they called an ultimatum, uh, basically demanding the Japanese step down from their ambitions in East Asia. So from their point of view, um, they were being boxed into a corner uh, and they felt they had to act. Professor Laterman, learn anything new about Hitler? Well, I think one of the things that we, we try to look at in relation to Hitler is is his ideas stretching back over, over a longer period. And we draw on quite a bit of the material that uh, Professor Sims drew on for his, 
Hitler biography published recently. And one of the things that was that was fascinating to us was some of these ideas that Hitler had formed around the time of the First World War and into the 1920s and the place of the United States in his ideology. And I think for for a long time, it was considered that, that Hitler saw the United States as this sort of decadent power um, that really wasn't that, that, that wasn't really a nation that he had to take much consideration of. I think what we try to show in the book is that Hitler actually had some very deep-seated ideas about the United States, and he saw it as, as it was, the most powerful industrial nation in the world, and that Germany needed to build up its own strength in order to be able to compete in a world where the United States would be the dominant power. And that conception of the United States was was a major part of it. So there was the, the sort of geopolitical sense, but there was also the demographic sense, the way in which Germans had left um, the uh, Germany in the late 19th, early 20th century, moved to the United States. And Hitler's concern was that they had strengthened the United States, which he saw as this um, this not just a geopolitical power, but also a racial power that had combined the stock of Anglo-Saxons with Germanic peoples. And his concern was to carve out an area in Europe where that emigration from Germany to the United States wouldn't continue to occur and that he would strengthen Germany's position. So we we were particularly interested in the way in which he saw the United States and the way in which that played into the decision making that he took in December 1941. Brendan Sims, did I read correctly in your book that on Dece- by by December the seventh, nineteen forty one, the Germans had killed one million Russian Jews already? That, that is uh, broadly speaking correct, I and mean, the figure is an approximation. But uh, the, the the mass murder of the Jews there had already, of course, been many Jews killed beforehand, particularly uh, in Poland. Uh, but the systematic murder. Uh, of European Jewry uh, really began with the uh, so-called Einsatzgruppen uh, in the summer of 1941, the autumn of 1941, where uh, the, the, probably about a million uh, Soviet Jews had been uh, um, uh, murdered through, through the use of bullets. Um, so that's a very different uh, form of killing, uh, of course, than gas chambers. Um, so Soviet Jewry, um, by and large, has been uh, eliminated by December 1941. So the Jews we're talking about that are now in contention are really the Jews of Central and particularly Western Europe, who loom uh, more and more large in Hitler's mind, because uh, he connects them wrongly, of course. But but we're trying to get into his his conception. He can connects uh, European Jewry uh, with the United States with the power of international capitalism, and he views them and he says this quite explicitly as a kind of hostage uh, for the good behavior of President Roosevelt. One of the most interesting things to me that I did not, did not know, and I'm not a historian, but I, in reading about this over the years, did not know, something called the Victory Plan. And General Albert Wiedemeyer and the Chicago Tribune, either one of you explain that, what it was, and what impact it had on those days you write about. Yes, of course, I'd be very happy to speak about that. So what happens with the Victory Program is that in 1941, the United States is moving closer to um, antagonism and potential belligerency with, the United, with, with Germany. There's the unrestricted, sub, um, so there's the undeclared submarine warfare in the Atlantic. 
there's um, the Atlantic Charter meeting with Winston Churchill, and there's the Lend-Lease provisions that are going to Britain and latterly to the Soviet Union as well. And over this period, as the United States is sort of moving towards um, a position of potentially outright belligerency, the United States and the Roosevelt administration decide to put in place certain plans for what they would need to do in order to defeat not just Nazi Germany, but also potentially Imperial Japan as well. And Wedemeyer um, oversees this victory program, this, um, this planning for w- what would be required for the United States to win that war. And it's, 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 a, it's a complex document because while it makes certain plans for what, what, what the United States would need to do, there's also the sense that underlays it that the United States can continue to supply the British and the Soviets, and that might be the best way for the United States to defeat Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan, not to enter itself in terms of full-scale military intervention. And that document, though, is leaked in the days leading up to Pearl Harbor um, in early December 1941. It's leaked to the press. It's, as you say, it's published in the Chicago Tribune, and there's a huge... um, outpouring of outrage from America firsters and those who were saying, well, Roosevelt might have been saying in public he was trying to avoid the United States getting into war, but in private he's planning for an intervention in this conflict. And so that's, in the American press, it's it, it's all around the world as well. And there's a sense there that the United States, because the Victory Programme talks about a potential ex- American expeditionary force to Europe, millions of American soldiers serving in Europe again, and this is at a time where, as we say, there might be sort of undeclared naval warfare in the Atlantic, but the United States is not a belligerent in the conflict. Because we still deal a lot with stories that are leaked from inside the government going through the process here. And I'll use your pronunciation on general. He ended up being a general, Wittemar. Uh, he was a major at the time who wrote this victory plan, but it was eventually leaked to Burton Wheeler, a Democrat, a senator from Montana, who was a progressive left of center. But he then leaked it to Robert McCormick's newspaper, The Tribune. McCormick was a conservative, but he was an isolationist. And I would ask uh, Brendan Sims about isolationism in the Midwest and what you all learned about that and the impact it had on FDR as he was approaching uh, this situation and, of course, the attack on December 7th. Well, it's a hugely constraining factor uh, for uh, FDR because it's no secret, really, that that he was uh, seeking not necessarily to bring the United States um, into the war directly, uh, but certainly to to, to defeat uh, Hitler. Um, And that rubbed up against these very strong views uh, on the America First isolationist side, which which basically argued that entry uh, by the U.S. into the First World War had been a mistake been something undertaken really uh, um, at the behest of the British to the manipulation of the press by the British, so the argument went, uh, following the interests of, of capitalists, really not something that was in tune uh, with the true spirit of the American people. Now, Roosevelt, of course, doesn't agree with that. He thinks that view is naive, but he's also realistic enough to, to realize that if he enters the war of his own accord, he will bring the United States in as a divided country. And so what he's trying to do is to maneuver as much as possible um, uh, in such a way uh, as to, to ensure that the United States will not be the aggressor, 
uh, that the uh, isolationists will be uh, shown up to be to be naive. Um, and uh, the problem really with uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor is that it only solves part of his problem. In some ways, it creates a new one. So his main concern, as we said, is with Hitler. And yet on the 7th of December, he has a conflict with uh, Japan uh, and not uh, with the German Reich. Um, and so in some ways, he's exactly in the place he doesn't want to be, uh, which is that he's fighting a war uh, that uh, people have warned him against. Uh, but at the same time, he's not actually fighting the war he wants to fight. So he still has a problem, in other words, with isolationists after Pearl Harbor. Uh, it's very much not the case, as you'll often read, uh, that uh, isolationism simply disappears uh, on December the 7th. It still lives on another few days. Charlie Laterman, you're a professor. Tell us where. Where are you today? And uh, where did you get your education? So I'm currently at uh, Stanford University's Hoover Institution, where I'm spending the academic year. But uh, I spend majority of my time at King's College London in the War Studies Department, which is my, my home institution. And prior to that, I took my PhD at the University of Cambridge. I've also studied at Yale University and the University of Nottingham. But uh, yes, uh, King's College London is my, my, my main home base at the moment. Before I go to uh, Professor Sims, what's the reaction in the classroom when you start teaching this? So when, when we, I think what, what we've, we try to do is to recreate the sort of the contingency, this uncertainty of, of trying to get students to get into the mindset of actors at the time. Because I think it's when we look back on history, there seems to be a sense of inevitability, certainly of something like the Second World War, where the United States is so powerful and the ultimate defeat of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan is so overwhelming that it seems inevitable that that was going to happen. And what we try to do is get students to to put themselves back in, in times of, of uncertainty, times where the sort of counterfactuals that we might look back on now were very real possibilities to those at the time. So as Brendan has said, one of the things that's, that's really important to us is to put ourselves in the position of President Roosevelt, his administration, where you have 75 to 80% of the population, according to public opinion polls in, in the days leading up to Pearl Harbor, not believing that the United States should recognize the existence of a state of war with Germany. And he feels very constrained by this public opinion. And then the, the attack by Japan on Pearl Harbor and the attacks across East Asia, in some senses, simplifies some matters by bringing the United States into the war. It means that Japan is not going to be attacking Britain on its own. And Roosevelt is able to bring the United States into that war in East Asia because he does see Japan as a great threat. But in, in many other ways, it causes huge problems that Nazi Germany is seen as the greater threat. But Roosevelt feels that he can't preempt um, Adolf Hitler by a declaration of war because of the constraints domestically. And so the questions become about how you respond to that. And, and big questions about what sort of supplies, lend-lease supplies will be provided to those nations fighting Germany and which and what um, what supplies will be kept for America's own armed forces for its new war in the Pacific. So the idea, and I think students find this very interesting to do, is to say, okay, how, how can we think strategically? How can we think as, as an actor at the time, what sort of decisions would I have made? How would I have dealt with this extremely complex situation? And that's sort of the, the, the heart of what, what I and, I and I believe Brendan Simmons does as well in his teaching. 
Brendan Sims, where are you today, and what is your background? And I ask you the same question about your students. So I'm I'm sitting in my uh, room in Peterhouse, which is the oldest college of the University of Cambridge. Um, I grew up in uh, the Republic of Ireland. I'm a Dubliner, and I went uh, did my first degree at Trinity College Dublin, and I came here to Cambridge to do to do my PhD. I took a few years out uh, from time to time to go to German universities, University of Tübingen uh, and University of Mainz. So I spend a lot of time uh, in Germany. And with respect to how students react, um, I think in addition to all the factors that um, Charlie has mentioned, uh, one thing that, that comes across to them very clearly is the danger of teleology. In other words, reading back uh, into history uh, from our own vantage point, from knowing in retrospect how things turned out, because we know that Hitler declared war uh, on the United States on the 11th of December uh, 1941, and therefore, uh, for all the reasons we've given, uh, let uh, Roosevelt off the hook. Because we know that, we tend to assume that that was always going to happen in that way, or at least that the other protagonist knew that that would happen. And so we lose this sense of um, what George Cannon called uh, excruciating uncertainty between uh, the 7th of December and the 11th of December. We lose that sense of contingency. So I think what's, what students appreciate particularly about our book, but also about this general way of approaching history, is that it restores the sense of drama, the sense of contingency, that things didn't have to turn out uh, the way they did. Um, and that, of course, the protagonists are always operating within a much more limited uh, range of information that then that is, which is available to us, the historians. Anybody that's interested can go online and listen to all of the FDR fireside chats. There are about 30 of them. You mentioned one in your book on December the 9th. And we're going to run just a minute excerpt of this because you say that instead of talking about Japan, uh, the whole time after the December 7th attack. He often talks about Germany. Here's FDR. Remember always that Germany and Italy, regardless of any formal declaration of war, consider themselves at war with the United States at this moment, just as much as they consider themselves at war with Britain or Russia. And Germany puts all the other republics of the Americas into the same category of enemies. The people of our sister republics of this hemisphere can be honored by that fact. Professor Lederman, what, what were you hearing there? I think this is a real escalation in the rhetorical combat that has occurred between President Roosevelt and Adolf Hitler from around 1937, where Roosevelt first puts Hitler's Germany alongside Mussolini's Italy and Imperial Japan um, in, his, in his famous quarantine speech of, of these dangers to the international order. And so Roosevelt really um, escalates the rhetoric, the sense that the United States is essentially already in a state of war with Germany. But I think what's fascinating about that is that in the in the aftermath of it and in the speech itself, Roosevelt doesn't ask Congress to call for a declaration of a state of war. 
because he knows, as we've said, the challenges that he faces with that domestically. And so while this speech sets out the challenge and the threat posed by Nazi Germany, to a certain extent, even though Roosevelt knows that that Hitler's Germany is the greater threat, he, he, he does not want and he cannot conceive of a war that the United States will fight only against Imperial Japan. He knows that for domestic political reasons, a lot of his problems will be solved if Hitler preempts him and, and, and asks for a declaration of war against the United States. And in this period, Roosevelt's getting intelligence as to how Hitler will act. It's slightly conflicting. It's not entirely clear that Nazi Germany will move towards a declaration of a state of war. But that is what Roosevelt believes and what he what he and what he what he needs essentially in order for the United States to enter the war united. Um, without any challenges coming from those who believe that the United States can avoid war with Germany, the, the, the America firsters who, who've been arguing against him for a long time, Roosevelt is is certain that if the United States comes in, it has to do so united. So this speech is part of that rhetorical strategy, but it's not the sort of culmination yet of a formal state of war between the United States and Germany. In your book, Hitler's American Gamble, you separate most of your book into chapters for December 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, leading up, as you say, to the Hitler speech on the 11th. But I want to ask you about a person, uh, Brendan Sims, Oshima. Who was he? And he comes up in your book several times, and what role did he play between December the 6th and December the 11th? So uh, General Oshima is the Japanese ambassador uh, in Berlin, uh, and he has a pretty critical role because he's one of the people who is tasked with uh, bringing about the agreement between uh, the Japanese Empire, the German Reich, uh, and Mussolini's Italy. Because, of course, uh, prior to Pearl Harbor, there is no uh, formal agreement uh, for a war which has been started uh, by the Japanese uh, or by any other of the Axis powers. They'd been linked uh, through a tripartite pact uh, in the autumn of 1940, but that pact was strictly a defensive pact. And so now a new arrangement was needed uh, to knit the three powers together uh, in a situation where a war had had taken place, uh, but actually it had been an offensive war, an aggressive war started uh, by Japan. So Oshima is really in the eye of the storm there, um, passing messages on uh, from Tokyo uh, to uh, to the German leadership, particularly uh, to the German foreign minister, uh, Joachim uh, von Ribbentrop. Um, and we know quite a lot about what he was doing uh, because his um, uh, communications were being intercepted with several days delay, but were being intercepted uh, by American intelligence. So um, uh, we have a, have a reasonably good idea uh, of what he was saying. Um, And we also have a good sense of the anxiety on the Japanese side after uh, December the 7th, the first few days after Pearl Harbor, where really Tokyo is concerned that although Hitler has said that he will come in and support them, he may not actually deliver. And that, and of course he had, it must be remembered, he had, for example, uh, stabbed Stalin in the back after uh, concluding a pact with him. Uh, So the nightmare scenario for the Japanese uh, on the 7th, 8th, 9th uh, of December, was that they would be fighting the British Empire, and particularly the United States, on their own, um, and Hitler would not come in uh, and support him. 
Um, so again, you get a real sense of the uncertainty uh, that is swirling around this issue at the time. Professor Lederman, tell us who ex-champagne salesman Ribbentrop was and what was his relationship to Oshima? Yes, so he's um, Hitler's foreign minister and had played a a major role in German diplomacy in the 30s into the 40s, had been in London as as an ambassador and in the late 30s um, helped to negotiate the pact with the Soviet Union that um, that Brendan had just talked about, um, the one which ultimately Germany would turn around and... um, and and ultimately rip up when they invaded the Soviet Union. So Ribbentrop is the German foreign minister at this time and is presiding over German diplomacy. And at a time where where, uh, the nation is at war, diplomacy obviously isn't the the first priority, but it's still very important in a world where there are major neutral nations like the United States that aren't involved in the conflict. So Ribbentrop is sort of the the point person for the American charged affairs in um, in in, uh, in Nazi Germany um, because th- there was no diplomatic representation. The United States had withdrawn its ambassador after Kristallnacht. The Germans didn't have an ambassador in, um, in, in Washington, but there were diplomats from either nation who were interacting with the with the foreign ministries. And so Ribbentrop is overseeing this, while at the same time, as Brendan says, he's also negotiating with the Japanese and with the Italians for this tripartite pact, which ultimately, prior to this, the, the you have a, this sort of loose agreement between the Germans, the Italians and the Japanese, but you don't have a formal agreement that if one of them ends up in a war with the United States, where they have where they have preempted it. Ultimately, Germany would have had to go to war if the United States had attacked Japan. But because it was the other way around, there was no legal obligation on the on Germany to do so. So Ribbentrop was tasked with turning that sort of informal agreement and that informal pact into a more formal one. And that's what we see over these few days because so much is still unsettled and it's requiring the diplomats and the foreign ministers to negotiate a new agreement in a very tight time frame. Let me ask you both about the process of this book. Uh, If I counted it right, there are 1,644 footnotes in 103 pages. Now, anybody that follows books knows that's a lot of work right there. How did you two divide up your responsibilities in writing this book? And how hard was it to sift through those 1,644 footnotes? Start with uh, Professor Sims. Book, so we, we, as it were, own and have discussed um, basically every line in it, but we did divide up uh, certain parts of it according to our respective expertises. So Charlie uh, knows particularly about the British side and the American side, and I knew particularly about the German side, and then I also took on the the Soviet angle and, and the Japanese angle. Um, and then we we simply uh, because because the book is is is, a, is very much a, a narrative a detailed blow by blow sometimes uh, um, not only hour by hour but minute by minute account of of proceedings in exact chronological order as best we could establish uh, that meant that research was quite difficult because we had to find out 
um, when certain things had happened or make a best estimate. But it meant that the writing of it was in some ways simplified because we had a, a strict chronology, at least in the main text chapters, uh, that we were following. Um, and I have to say that um, despite all the warnings we got, uh, that uh, joint authorship is very difficult and ends in broken friendships. Um, Charlie and I are still talking to each other. <laughs> Professor Lederman, mm-hmm. give us your take on putting this process of writing this book together. Yes, as, as Ben said, what we were trying to do, because it was so important for us to be able, for any reader to be able to put themselves in the positions of the main protagonists, what we were, what we really wanted to be able to do is, is to capture as much of that period, that very tight time frame as possible. So as you say, that, that required a lot of reading in the secondary sources. It required a lot of um, uh, digging in archives around the world in order to really get to the essence of how people were experiencing this period. Both the, the high statesmen at the top, but one of the things we try and do in the book is to give a sense of what the ordinary person on the streets in all of these countries was feeling. So this would require access to, to diaries, to um, to um, um, what, what was what was on the radio at this time as well, just to give a sense of what it was like. And so, we 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 divided in the way in which um, which Brendan has mentioned. And one of the things that was that was so difficult, but which was um, I think what was in, also enjoyable to try and do, is to try and fit this puzzle together to try to know what people knew and when they knew it, because because of the intelligence intercepts from the British and the Americans, they were able to read a lot of what the Germans and the Japanese were sending to each other. But the question was, when did they know it? How and, and, and how complete a picture did that give you? Because a lot of this, um, a lot of these intercepts were quite fragmentary. And so that was really important to us is to try and try and sort of inhabit the minds of, of people making decisions that ultimately determine the fate of the world. We're going to I'm going to run a minute and and this is dangerous to do on radio because people just hear it will think, what in the world are are we? Why are we doing this? I'm going to run a minute of the Nazi national anthem that you refer to in here, which is named after, as you all know, a young soldier who was killed at age 22, a German uh, who was a brown shirt and his name was Horst Vessel. Uh, and this is the national anthem. We'll just listen to a minute of it and ask both of you to reflect on uh, what role this kind of thing played in the lead up to uh, his speech on December the 11th. Joseph Goebbels made a hero out of this guy. And uh, the first uh, four lines of this song, flag high, ranks closed. The SA, which were the stormtroopers, marches with silent, solid steps. Comrades shot, shot by the Red Front. Those are the communists of Germany. And reaction, march in spirit with us in our ranks. I could go on, but you, here's, that's the flavor of what the Germans were hearing during that time. Professor Sims, fill in the blanks. 
Yes, so he is a, a figure from the early history of the SA, um, and he is, he is killed uh, in somewhat uh, controversial circumstances. There's, uh, he seems to have been in some sense a pimp, um, but he was turned into a martyr by the National Socialist uh, movement. And then this, this hymn, uh, this song becomes a sort of party anthem and is then played uh, very much uh, uh, at the same time or, or, or uh, soon after or before uh, the uh, traditional German uh, national anthem, or at least the one that is then uh, adopted um, after uh, uh, the uh, German Empire. Uh, and of course, is the Nazi, uh, the, the anthem then uh, also under the Nazi uh, period. So you've got these two tunes, one Haydn, uh, and the other, um, uh, the Horst Wessel uh, lead. Um, and it's intended really to get the uh, the party faithful uh, sort of whipped up. Um, and the, the language of that um, of that song uh, is indeed suggestive. Uh, you read out a couple of lines. There are other lines uh, towards the end which says, uh, which say, today uh, Germany belongs to us uh, and tomorrow uh, the whole world, sometimes also rendered as today Germany hears us uh, and tomorrow uh, the whole world will hear us. So in some ways, uh, you know, from the vantage point of 1941, when Germany is about to take on really uh, the whole of the rest of the world, uh, those the words of that song uh, must resonate in, in very interesting, complicated ways. Charlie Lederman, you can react to that, but also set up what the situation was leading up to the Hitler speech. What was the atmosphere in the United States and in Germany and the rest of the world? Yes, so the, um, the, the, the song is sort of part of this sort of pomp and theatricality that, that, um, that Hitler is determined to um, maintain in the lead up to his speech. So his speech is announced around the world. Um, it's confirmed sort of on the evening of the 10th of, um, of December, and this announcement that Hitler will speak at 3 p.m. in Germany. And the idea of that is that he would be speaking at that time, not just to Germany, but to the whole world, that the Japanese will be able to hear this before they go to bed, and that the Americans will be able to hear this when they wake up. And so Hitler chooses that time very consciously. What's clear is that even with that announcement, that he will, that he will address the Reichstag, it's not necessarily clear to everyone that he's going to move to a declaration of a state of war. It still could be the case that he just declares um, his affinity, his support for the Japanese, but doesn't formally declare war. And so if you look at the American newspapers, the British newspapers on the morning of December the 11th, there's still some sense of that this could be a sort of a limited speech. It may not be the sort of confirmation of a formal state of war that, um, that, that, that it might seem. So Hitler um, giving the speech at 3 p.m. So there's this sort of uh, this, this, this looming threat, but at the same time there's this sort of like farce about it as well. So Hitler is is preparing to give his speech. Mussolini is also wanting to declare war on the United States and to sort of give his own sort of take on this. And there's all these challenges going on between the Germans and the Italians as to who is going to declare war first. That the Hitler and the Germans don't want Mussolini to preempt him. Mussolini is determined to get his words in. And ultimately, actually, Mussolini does declare war ahead of Hitler. And this is sort of recognised around the world, this, this sort of farcical sense of the two 
sort of self-proclaimed strongmen trying to sort of out, outbid each other in order to be the ones to be the first to declare war on the United States. Professor Sims, uh, in your book, you say Hitler's announcement of war on the U.S. considered, it is considered an inexplicable strategic blunder. Why? Well, on the face of it, you would have to ask yourself, given that you are already, if you're Hitler, uh, engaged in a really difficult conflict with the British Empire, which which is, he is not winning, uh, stalemated. Um, he just run into the ground uh, before Moscow uh, on the Eastern Front. Why? And given also that, as we were talking about earlier on, he in fact has a very healthy respect for U.S. power. Why on earth would he engage in an act uh, that would then seem suicidal? And in fact turned out to be suicidal because we know how this ends. And the answer is, it's precisely because he has such a fear of US power and because he believes that President Roosevelt is trying to bring the United States into the war against him and because he thinks that actually Roosevelt is going to succeed, because he fears that the Japanese will go down to defeat and because he thinks he really only has a, without his intervention, and therefore he really only has a very a small window of opportunity to crush the Soviet Union, or at least to push Stalin further away, uh, to to stalemate uh, the British, and then to uh, basically uh, dig in uh, on the continent of Europe using uh, the grain and raw materials uh, of the Soviet Union to outlast the Anglo-American blockade. That's a pretty narrow path to victory, or at least to, to some kind of compromise peace. But it's the only path he can see. And that's why he determines uh, to seize the initiative, as he, as he would regard it. And, and he says quite explicitly, I'm not going to allow the Americans to declare war on me like uh, President Wilson did in the First World War. I'm going to preempt them. I will maintain the initiative here. Um, so that's how that paradox is resolved. Professor Lederman, uh, I, I looked up the speech. It's, it's long. It's dense. Um, but my question, do you happen to know who wrote it? That's a, that's a, it's, a good, it's a good question. He, Hitler himself is sort of pouring over it in the, in the days leading up to it. And it's part of the, part of the way that um, things then ultimately get pushed back. And, and one of the reasons why there's such uncertainty is that at one point Hitler is going to be giving this speech on the 10th of December. It ultimately isn't ready. So he ultimately decides to push that back in order to make sure that this set-piece speech does everything that he wants it to do. But he also has diplomats in the German Foreign Office sort of preparing the sort of the, the, the formulations that he's going to be directing against the United States. They, they go back all, over all of Roosevelt's speeches going back to 1937 and that quarantine speech to say this is this sort of um, unconstrained hostility that the United States has had against us and this is what has sort of directed us towards this conflict. So it's uh, it's Hitler sort of provides the uh, the sort of essence and uh, it's sort of the essence of his uh, of his worldview, but it's sort of being supplied by by diplomats in terms of the um, the fodder for it. But uh, Brenda might be able to um, to fill in a bit more of the detail on that. No, that's exactly right. So I mean, Hitler writes his own speeches, but he does uh, have a lot of input. First of all, from uh, German diplomats, as Charlie was saying, uh, but also from Goebbels. And in fact, he spends quite a lot of the period 
between the 7th and the 11th, actually preparing his speech. This is really the most important thing uh, going on for him at the time, in some ways more important uh, than the crises on the Eastern Front, uh, for example. Um, he's totally focused on this political and rhetorical uh, sort of high point culmination of his career. I mean, almost basically his entire uh, worldview is now being vindicated, as he sees it, in this conflict, which takes the German Reich uh, into open war with the ultimate enemy. The ultimate enemy being uh, the United States, the great industrial power, the great capitalist power, the plutocratic power, the power which is so strong racially, as Charlie said earlier, because it has, uh, in his view, these really powerful Anglo-Saxon and Germanic elements, um, but also a power which, in his view, has been subverted uh, by the uh, manipulations and machinations of international jury. And so he, spe he, he spent an inordinate amount of time preparing this speech because it's so important to him. I'm going to read back to you your summary of what was in this speech, four points, and have you both comment on any one of them. One, the supposed power of international Jewry. Two, the evil of plutocracy. Three, the hostility of Roosevelt. And four, centrality of race and space. And let me ask somebody, what, what does it mean, centrality of race and space? Well, Hitler sees... Uh, race and space as intimately related. So his explanation of world history and his explanation for the fact that the German Reich is in such a disadvantageous position uh, in the mid-20th century is that the Anglo-Saxons have basically walked off with the most desirable parts of the world. They control, in the case of the British Empire, obviously that huge territory, and in the case of the United States, which he regards as an Anglo-Saxon power, of course, the vast expanse of the territorial United States. And Hitler's argument is that, therefore, the British and the Americans are able to develop uh, their true racial qualities because they've got space within which they can unfold, they have resources on which they can draw. By contrast, in Hitler's view, uh, the German Reich is territorially highly constricted. Um, it is unable uh, to, field, to feed its... Um, burgeoning population. And then that population emigrates, as Charlie said uh, at the beginning of our, our conversation, uh, and in fact fertilizes. This is the word, the exact word that Hitler uses. The Germans fertilize uh, Anglo-America. So bringing race and space into the right relationship with each other, in other words, by capturing in European Russia the living space, the Lebensraum, necessary in his view for the development uh, of the German race. Uh, that's absolutely critical to Hitler's project. Just a reminder to our listeners that uh, Professor Sims is in his office at Cambridge in Great Britain, just north of London. And our other guest, uh, co-author of this book, Charlie Laterman, is at Stanford at the Hoover Institution. Uh, Professor Laterman, the hostility of Roosevelt. Yes, so ultimately... Hitler sees a lot of these things as being interconnected. So for, for Roosevelt, there's a sense that Roosevelt has been pushing towards um, a state of war with Germany ever since 1937. And so Hitler sees this sort of looming challenge that's being posed by the United States. I think what's important to say is that if you're sitting in London 
in the lead up to December 1941, there's by no means a sense of inexorability that the United States is going to enter into this war in a formal sense. So this is one of the things that's so important that we try to show in the book is it, it depends where you're sitting and it depends um, where you are for how the world looks at this period. Is the war going to be inevitable or is it not? Um, so from Hitler's perspective, it certainly is inevitable. And as Brendan said, that's why he believes he needs to preempt Roosevelt, but that he also needs to do so in such a way that um, that there's this sort of very limited time frame where he can strike and ultimately build the barricades under which he might be able to survive an American onslaught. So there's the hostility of Roosevelt, but the other aspects are also connected as well. So for, from Hitler's perspective, he believes that Roosevelt is sort of the the puppet of international jury. He's been stating for, for years that sort of the heart of Hitler's radically anti-Semitic worldview is this belief that international jury, this this conspiracy that underlies the um, the major powers, that the, the jury is behind the the, um, the enemies of Germany and are manipulating the United States into war with Nazi Germany. Now, of course, you've been saying also alongside this ever since the late 1930s, that if a world war was to come, and as his conception of this, a world war would be a war with the United States. But if a world war was to come, it would lead to the destruction of international jury. And obviously, for someone with such a radically anti-Semitic worldview, the sense is that this is, um, this, this, um, the, these things are sort of inexorably going to happen. There's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy in Hitler's mind if, if, if World War comes, which obviously, ultimately, he brings about by his declaration of war on, um, on, on the United States in order to bring in the most powerful neutral nation, the most powerful industrial nation into this conflict. Um, so ultimately, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that he ultimately, after this, will escalate um, the genocide that he has already been perpetrating against European Jewry accelerates the Holocaust and the final solution. So for, for him, these things are, are interlinked and it ultimately leads to the um, to sort of this escalation, this acceleration of the worst crimes of Nazi Germany. Professor Sims, uh, I find this statistic, uh, I guess one way it's sad, it, it's, it, it, I want you to comment on it, that in 1941, there are 17 million Jews in the world. Today, there are 15 million Jews in the world. They still haven't come back to that level that they were then. What does that, what does that say to you? Well, it, it, it's a reminder of uh, the terrible crime perpetrated by uh, Hitler's Germany against European Jewry, uh, which was justified in his mind, and we stress in his mind only, uh, by... Uh, his belief, as Charlie outlined, uh, that so-called international jury was behind an international conspiracy against him. Uh, and one of the things we show in the book is that the day after Hitler's declaration of war on the 11th of December, he proceeds on the 12th of December uh, with a, a meeting which he summoned a few days earlier of the Nazi political leadership. And he says, uh, roughly speaking, uh, you know, I warned the Jews, inverted commas, uh, a couple of years ago that if uh, we have another world war, and world war means war with the United States, then they will pay the price. Well, now we have the world war, he says, uh, and now uh, they must suffer. So there's a very direct connection made in his mind between the 
contest with the United States uh, and the murder of the remaining Jews, bearing in mind that one million or at least had already been uh, murdered, the remaining Jews uh, on the European continent. Um, and so the figure you cited uh, just now reflects um, that, that awful legacy. The, one of the other things that you said was a theme of his speech, and I, I'll just throw in this background. You, you can get online and look at who the richest countries in the world are, and one of them that uh, caught my eye, depending on how you figure this, the United States is either number one or number two, Germany is number three, and Japan is number four, uh, number eight. So he saw the, the world as the evil of plutocracy, and now today, Germany, after all this, sits there being somewhat protected by the United States, and they're rich. Either one of you. That's a great irony, um, if I may start off, um, and one of which the Germans are, are also very conscious. Uh, and we see this much discussed today, of course, uh, in the context of the Ukrainian crisis, where the Germans have been very uh, backward, uh, according to their critics, uh, with uh, uh, coming up with uh, collective security solutions uh, for Europe and have been regarded as being really far too lenient uh, towards, uh, towards uh, the, the Russia of uh, Vladimir Putin, while at the same time the Anglo-Americans, and particularly, of course, the United States, are the ones who are bearing uh, the burden of the common defence. Uh, so th there is uh, still a lot of, um, I think, legacy from the Second World War because all of this is justified uh, and can be explained by the enduring uh, trauma that this war causes uh, also for the German people uh, about uh, the legitimate use of force. Uh, and all of that goes back, of course, to the experience of the Second World War. Professor Sims, because you have to leave, I'm going to ask you one more question, and then I'll have a few more minutes with uh, Professor Lederman. Uh, one of the things uh, in the book that is said, Hitler's greatest blunder was losing to the Russians. How did he lose to the Russians, and why did he break the pact that they had back in '39? Well, he, he breaks the pact with the Russians because of the uh, war with the British Empire. He, he outlines this very clearly in the lead-up to Operation Barbarossa, which begins, of course, on the 22nd of June, 1941. And his argument is, is the following. He says that, uh, first of all, uh, the British are continuing in the hope of having the Soviet Union join in, so we must take that hope from them. Secondly, in order to outlast uh, the British blockade, we need uh, the food and raw material resources of the Soviet Union. Um, and thirdly, uh, we need to sort out the Soviet Union before the United States comes in. And uh, finally, um, having dispatched the Soviet Union, uh, Roosevelt might be less likely to come in. So that's the motivation behind the attack. It's really part of his, um, his overall war with Anglo-America. It isn't, uh, in the first instance, uh, the product of his anti-Bolshevist sentiment, important though that is. But what's really driving it is the conflict with Anglo-America. Then, of course, uh, he underestimates the Soviet Union. Um, and after uh, early successes in the summer and autumn of 1941, he is, uh, before uh, Moscow uh, at the beginning of uh, December of 41, running into trouble. But what's always interesting, and this is something we stress in the book, is that even in that situation, his main concern is the British and the Americans, particularly the Americans. He doesn't really take on board the magnitude of the crisis 
before Moscow until a couple of weeks later uh, when he imposes the, uh, the famous halt order and says, you know, no step back. So while the Eastern Front is important and losing it was obviously pretty catastrophic, uh, our argument basically is uh, that that needs to be seen in proportion to, in fact, the greater threat uh, posed uh, both in Hitler's imaginary, but also in reality, given the industrial power uh, of Anglo-America uh, by the British Empire uh, and by the United States. Professor Brendan Sims at Cambridge, thank you very much. We'll let you go. I know you have another meeting to go to, and we thanks for joining us. And I'm going to hold on to Professor Lederman for a couple more minutes. Thank you. So go to Professor Lederman with a question. What was the tripartite pack and what relationship did that have to all this? Yeah, so going back to, in, to 1940, Germany, Italy and Japan had been moving towards a more sort of formal agreement in terms of their hostility to um, the United States in particular, this possibility of the United States entering into the war. There'd been this long-standing sort of loose collaboration between what we describe as a war. Hitler certainly um, uses the term of, of the have-not powers, this sense that these, these powers that are sort of revanchist powers looking to upset the international system, who believe that the world has been ordered in such a way where the British Empire and the United States are the dominant powers in the world, and they're trying to carve out their own places in the sun. So they are moving sort of towards a looser collaboration, but ultimately they start to move towards a more for, more formal agreement, um, which is which is in part directed against the Soviet Union, certainly after um, Germany's invasion of the Soviet Union, but also even more so against the United States and the British Empire. And what we see within this is this 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 sense where Hitler, because he doesn't want to see Japan go down to defeat on its own against the United States, he needs to keep the United States distracted from affairs in Europe so that he can dispense with the Soviet Union as he sees it. Ultimately, Hitler has pledged that that Germany would join in any war that Japan launches against the United States even though he isn't under treaty obligation to do so unless another power attacks Japan, not if Japan launches that conflict itself. And the big question of the tripartite pact for for those who are looking at it from the outside, for the British and the Americans, is can you trust Hitler's word? He might have pledged this, and the British and Americans are aware that he has pledged this, but can you believe what Hitler will, will do? Will he as Roosevelt's speechwriter Robert Sherwood says at the time, will Hitler allow such bourgeois sentiments as sort of legal niceties and diplomatic agreements to guard his action? Because as we know in the past, Hitler has often reversed himself. There's no clear indication that Hitler will follow through on his word. But that's sort of at the heart of this discussion. Can, can you trust Hitler's word and will this lead to this formal pact? agreement with Japan in order to take on the United States. You know, as I'm reading your book and and when we're recording this, it's right in the middle of the confrontation that uh, uh, Mr. Putin has put up against uh, Ukraine. I kept seeing the same pattern. I know it's not the same at the moment. It's not the same, uh, uh, you know, it's not as large, but uh, do you have any sense that uh, it, when, as you listen through the 
discussion on Ukraine that there is a similarity in what happens behind the scenes among the diplomats? I think I think there are certainly similarities in terms of statesmen having to make decisions where they have in extraordinarily compressed timeframes, but also they're doing this where they have really incomplete pictures of how the other side is going to act, even in an age of sort of hyper communications that we have today, even though the intelligence that we have on um, on competitors, there's still a very incomplete picture. And so statesmen are having to make these decisions without knowing all the things that we, we know when we look back on them. But also I think what's fascinating is the way in which the United States, again, is facing the possibility of conflicts on both sides of the Eurasian um, landmass, this possibility of a conflict in Eastern Europe with Russia and the challenge that it poses to Ukraine, but at the same time, the challenge posed by China and potentially to Taiwan. And a lot of people, a lot of analysts talking about the interrelationship between the two. And we see the same thing in 1941. Where should the United States focus its attention? Should it be on East Asia? Should it be on Europe? Does the United States have the capacity to fight um, or in order to deter war in both places? And I think it's one of the other things that, that's important to us. Obviously, we know that the United States enters into the Second World War and is able to fight these massive conflicts in both East Asia and in Europe. But that wasn't clear at the time. It wasn't clear that the United States necessarily had the industrial base in order to do this. There was a limited amount of suppliers that the United States was giving to the British and Soviets and which it would have left over for itself as well. So these were big questions at the time. And a lot of the people who were America firsters and opposed to the war with Germany were also believers that the United States should ultimately focus on the Pacific once the Japanese hit Pearl Harbor. They become Pacific firsters. And these big questions about can the United States basically sustain um, struggles in Europe and in East Asia, where should the focus be? Is the main challenge coming from East Asia? Is it coming from Western Europe um, in terms of the, the challenge that's being posed there? These are, these, are some, these are similar questions, even if the regimes are obviously very different, but the strategic questions and the dilemmas that statesmen face are quite similar to those that we saw in 1941. We can wrap this up, but before we do... Of all the people you wrote about and thought about during this preparation for this book, who was the smartest? That's an excellent question. It was, uh, I think, one of. The, I think I came away from this with a, with a with even more of a fascination about Franklin Roosevelt. He really is a is a fascinating figure and a fascinating figure for historians to try to understand because he doesn't reveal that much of himself. Even those of his closest aides. They, they don't know what's going on as the inner workings of his mind. Does he believe prior to December 1941 that the United States should formally enter into this war? That is still unclear to historians. It was unclear to his advisers at the time. And I think what's fascinating about this is the way in which Roosevelt, in an extremely um, stressful situation, is able to sort of navigate um, and maintain the strategy that he has in mind in terms of this focus on Germany, even while the United States is faced with a war with Japan. So he's having to juggle all manner of different things, the domestic political situation in the United States, where there's a great deal of opposition to him and the possibility of a war in Europe, while also trying to ensure that the United States is still supporting the, Brit the British and the Soviet Union's 
during um, against Nazi Germany. So he's having to navigate this, and it's a very, very complex situation. And ultimately, I think the way in which he escalates the rhetorical clash with Hitler leads Hitler to ultimately fall into, um, certainly as some as some analysts saw at the time, an element of a trap that ultimately the Hitler preempts this conflict in the belief that if he doesn't, then the United States will join the war at a time of its own choosing, whereas Roosevelt is still concerned about the domestic sense and believes that only the unity that would come from Germany preempting the conflict will bring about the United States entering the war in an undivided way. So it's a very complex situation, and the way in which Roosevelt navigates it is fascinating to, um, to, to, to look back on. The name of the book is Hitler's American Gamble, Pearl Harbor and Germany's March to Global War. Our guests have been Brendan Sims and Professor Charlie Laterman, who is currently out at Stanford, but headquarters in King's College in London. And we thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.